Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather with our brothers and sisters to pursue and devote ourselves to the means of grace. We pray that you'd give us wisdom on this matter and help us to have faith in your promises and obedience to your commands and come according to the terms and means that you've laid out for us. And we thank you for our great high priest, Jesus Christ. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me read a little section just to get us started. And then I'm going to go back to Acts 2. Today we'll be studying the high priestly ministry of Christ and why we need to be people who are willing to learn what God has said. It says in Hebrews 5, 9 to 14, that's our main text. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now let's go back and set the stage. This is what we've been studying. When I teach Sunday school, means of grace. So we're looking at Acts 2, 41 and 42. It says here, So then, those who had received his word, that was Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, were baptized. And we've already covered that topic of baptism. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Here we have a term I have highlighted in green, devoting. So people talk about devotions their idea may or may not be something like what we're seeing here sometimes it's just reading a little booklet that somebody wrote okay and that may be helpful especially if it's biblical but what they were devoted to was the apostles teaching and we've proven many times here that christ is the authoritative lawgiver his spokesperson for the new covenant, and that his ordained apostles speak authoritatively for God, having been appointed by Christ. So that's the teaching they're devoting themselves to. Now, this term for devotion is also used in, well, first of all, let me quote the Lao and Nida lexicon on devotion as this word is used in the Greek. To continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of despite difficulty, to devote oneself to, to keep on and to persist in, quote unquote, that's Launida. So if people are looking for something 
it seems like they are, some practice or some devotion that they can put intense effort into, generally what they run to is the Desert Fathers, contemplative spirituality, silent solitude, Roman Catholic mysticism, medieval monastic practices, anything and everything, or even law works. They'll devote themselves to law works. But that's not what it says. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. And this is with the implication of understanding the meaning and submitting to binding implications and applications. That's what Eric and I were just talking about when we recorded a radio show. This is essential. And even the Bible itself has been compromised by these so-called devotional practices. One that I wrote about was this Donald Whitney who has brought mysticism into Reformed theology. And I roundly or soundly rebuked him for it some years ago. Silence and solitude and all that. He takes the Bible and calls it Bible intake like it was gasoline. Doesn't bother to tarry one moment on the idea of the meaning. Well, I got through three chapters. Well, well, that's not going to do you any good if you don't understand a single word of any of it. Well, I read it, but it didn't do you any good. Okay. It says in Hebrews that the word preached to them did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in the hearers. We must understand the author's meaning, understand the implications thereof, and believe what God said. That's devoting oneself to, not just intake. So I'm not saying you can't have a thing where you read through the Bible in a year. That's, that's fine. But if you read through the Bible in a year and you don't understand a word of it, it's not going to do you any good. I'd rather read two verses and actually understand them and understand the author's meaning. Okay, so in my case, to get through the Bible took 40-some years. I guess I'm a slow reader. But I've been through it many times. But I want to know what has God said. Once you know what God said, you have something to believe. And when you have something to believe, you have something to be devoted to. And in this devotion, the power of God is at work changing your life by grace. Absolutely. I believe that with all my heart. Okay. Now, a couple cross-references. reference Norm, if you could look up Romans 12, 2, and then Brian, Ephesians 6, 18. And we see in Acts 2, 42 that both devotion to the word of God and prayer are means of grace. Okay? Devotion to the word of God and prayer are both means of grace. And the term for devotion is used both for the apostles' teaching, and for prayer in the New Testament. Same word. Okay, so Romans 12. No, excuse me. I got the wrong one. Romans 12, 12. There's an extra one in there. I'm going to do Romans 12, 2 and 12, 12. Yes. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Yeah, there's that same word. So we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, and we're devoted to prayer. Okay. Brian, Ephesians 6.18. With all prayer and petition. Whoa, 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 whoa. I can't hear you. With all prayer and petition, 
pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Yeah, this be on the alert with perseverance is the same word for devotion in Acts 2.42. So we're devoted to prayer. We're devoted to the apostles' teaching. But we're not devoted to anything until we have understanding. Otherwise, it's just a vacuous mysticism that doesn't mean anything. We must have understanding. That's where we're going to go now in Hebrews. Now, we'll start with verse 8. There's so much in here. But Hebrews 5 and verse 8, we're going to talk about Christ as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to see that this is so important that the unwillingness to learn it according to Hebrews, is tantamount to apostasy and might result in apostasy. And just try today to teach something like this in most evangelical churches. They blank out. They think it's impractical. We don't want to get into all these technicalities of theology. Well, the Bible does. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, And although he was a son, talking about Messiah, He learned obedience from the things he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, obviously, there's some theological issues to address here, because I would assume that you're like me, and the first question you have is, how can Jesus, the perfect one, be made perfect? Did you think of that? I I bet you did. Well, if I may recommend a commentary on Hebrews, and it it helped me when I taught this in the radio, here's William Lane's commentary from the Word series. It's the best. It's so much better than the other ones, although I consult many of them. And this was a term, this term here, he learned obedience, had a specific meaning, says Lane, And here's what it is. It's obedience to the call to suffer death in accordance with the revealed will of God. And he gives many cross-references and scholarly citations to prove that. So it's a willingness to suffer death in obedience to the word of God. So the perfect sinless one comes into this world, is called by the Father to suffer and remember what he said if it's possible let this cup pass from me but not my will but thine here is his submission to the revealed will of the father that he would suffer death and bring many sons to glory according to Hebrews and so as Lane says Jesus freely accepted the suffering of death because scripture And through it, God appointed him to this sacrifice for the sake of the office. Jesus, the son, which is biblical, suffered, which is biblical, which is prophecy, died, which is biblical, which is prophecy, and was raised on the third day. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, and many other places. And the obedient son succeeded where Israel failed. Israel, when coming into the wilderness, is called God's son. But Israel grumbled in the wilderness 
rebelled against Yahweh and Moses and failed in the time of temptation. This is also a theme in Mark. And William Lane has a good commentary on Mark as well. Israel failed God because they were son, they were the son in a smaller sense. Israel's my son. I think it's Exodus 4.22. But they failed. Jesus comes as the son and doesn't fail, but is a faithful son and was obedient unto death. So he learned obedience, not in the sense that he was disobedient, but that he fulfilled the calling of suffering and dying for sins, which happened at the cross. And so it's not correcting an imperfection in our Lord. There is no imperfection, but fulfilling a calling. All right, Peter, first and then Floyd. Make sure you speak right into that mic. You should hear yourself over here. So does the the church today just, they can't come to terms with these means? With the meaning of this? Yeah. Well, you got to be willing to study it. Okay. And if you were here that Wednesday night when I talked about neo-paganism, if the word of God is not taught fully and forthrightly in its fullness, gradually the members of the church become pagan in their thinking. Now, in this case, these people were perfectly capable, I'll show you the irony in a moment, of learning these things, but they didn't want to hear it. And that's exactly what I've seen and what I've run into in my own experience. We don't want to hear this. Tell us something more practical. What's practical about Jesus learning obedience to the thing he suffered? Is that all you got to share? So they just reject the terms. Well, they just lose interest in it. It's like one of us watching a soccer game. No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) That was bad. <laughs> after after an hour of zero to zero, I totally tune out. Okay, go ahead. Can you hear me? Now oh, I do. You should hear yourself. Yep. Sure. It reminds me of the term "therefore." Oh, although he was yeah. a son. Although he was a son, that is. I'll repeat it. Although the idea was that he's greater. The question was why? Why the although? Good, that's a good question. Suppose that he wouldn't learn obedience? No, it's because he's greater and we might think he doesn't need to. Okay. Okay? As the holy, perfect son from all eternity, it seems odd that he would even need to. But though he's the son and he learned obedience, and so the implication is the, from the greater to the lesser. If the sinless son... Good question, even though we're in trouble over here. Good question. Though he were the son, he learned obedience. How much more do us sinful sons and daughters need to learn obedience? That's the point. And we don't. And so what are we going to do about the fact we don't really learn obedience the way we ought to? That's where we're going. Because he suffered temptation and weakness yet without sin, we have an option to help us in our time of need and our lack of obedience. And that's the intercessor at the right hand of God. I'm telling you, if this sinks into us, we will be devoted to prayer. 
in all things. Because the one who suffered more than we can know. I, I've heard, and I think this is correct, that because Messiah was perfectly holy and sinless, the bearing of sin was even greater suffering because it was foreign to him, even though he did not have his own sin. It was so abhorrent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of them have gone wrong directions with that, but that's Psalm 22. So he learned obedience to the things he suffered. And so how much more can we trust him become to those who obey him the source of salvation? He can save us and save us to the uttermost. Good question. Let me continue with some more lane here. Although he was son, says in the Greek, says lane is to be understood in the light of the paradox that the transcendent son was ordained to suffer death. He does not cling to the privileged status that his unique sonship implies, but receives it from the Father only after he suffered the humiliation of death on the cross. That doesn't mean Jesus wasn't the eternal son, but there's some intercessory sonship here that happens in history. Jesus learned experientially, says Lane, what obedience entails through his passion in order to achieve salvation and to become fully qualified for his office as eternal high priest. Now, maybe it doesn't sink into us. Okay, we can't just go down to the local Jewish temple and see the high priest in all of his garb and hear the sheep bleeding and smell the smells and hear the sounds and the sacrifices. They could. And they were tempted to do so because it seemed more real than a heavenly high priest. The whole system of Roman Catholicism is set up to recreate a priesthood that legitimately only belongs to Christ as the high priest and all believers as the priesthood of all believers. And they recreate the sounds, the pomp, the circumstance, the visual stimulation. Oh, it's so real. But we have to believe that the Son suffered, ascended, and is seated in his session at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for us. Do we believe that? And believing, are we willing to go to the throne of grace to find grace and help in our time of need? Or do we seek other solutions first? The first place we should go is to the throne of grace. Now, why does it say those who obey him? Nancy, could you look up Romans 1 and verse 5? Sure. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. It's about God taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Yeah. It'd be that. The idea. Bible says that the gospel's to be obeyed. Amen. He, the call to repent and believe. Okay, Romans 1 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. The obedience of faith. Amen. So there we have the son who learns obedience, who suffered on our behalf 
who's qualified by his suffering to be a merciful high priest who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, right? That we can go to. Do you think you'd be better off going to Mary because she's a little easier to approach? <laughs> but think about that. Millions or maybe billions of people do. Well, Jesus, he might be kind of disgusted with me. I think I'll go to Mary. She's kind of nice. Is there any other mediator that we can even go to? Is there any other high priest? No. There's only one. I was just reading Luther this week quite a bit. And I was particularly reading about the priesthood of every believer. What are the implications of that as found in Peter, the doctrine, is that every believer can go to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16, without any human mediation. You can't go to some holy man on the earth and say, would you go for me? Because you don't want to go yourself. You run into that as you go through life, or I've seen that where somebody's kind of been trained to believe that way. They think the pastor is a holy man that can go to God because they couldn't do it themselves. We should never give that implication ever. There's no holy person who can go to God better than we can. We all have direct access to the high priest. We are all priests, kings and priests. The fact of the matter is that people who claim to be Christians in poll after poll, not just congregants, congregants, but pastors as well, approximately 60% don't believe in the resurrection, do not believe in the virgin birth, do not believe in the things of the true church. And these things are being passed on to the congregants. For example, the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church, they have just come out with an article and the head of it with a book just ripping on Israel, saying that Israel is the cause of all the problems in the Middle East. So the point is, is that when Look, we're a rarity to get together as a congregation like this and study verse-by-verse Scripture and trying to find out what the Lord is trying to tell us. This is unusual. You don't see this in most churches across the nation. It shouldn't be, and I pray that it won't be. If we want to not have pagan thinking, we have to have the Word of God weigh heavily on us. What you said just now, Brian is no different than the church I grew up in. They didn't believe in the resurrection. But in their hypocrisy demanded that the 12-year-olds of the church swear they believed in the resurrection to join the church because they were forced to join. And the pastor didn't believe in it. How wicked is that? If you don't believe in it, why do you make me believe in it? So I left the church. My mom remembers me sitting out in the car. I, I was so offended I wouldn't go in. Not that I did believe, I was an unbeliever. But I was looking, what are we claiming? I'm in this church, what are they claiming? Make the world a better place to live in. So I said, I got a, when I turned 60, I had a letter from my mom, and she reminded me of a 
one time when I sat out in a car in a little country church refused to go in. She said that was really a long hour for her. Here's my mom with a rebellious son and won't go into church. I'm not saying I did the right thing, but I just had had it. That was about when I learned that the pastor didn't believe what we're supposed to believe. Now, Eric and I are being very, very careful in our in study diligently so that we would never ask you to believe what's not true. And what we don't believe ourselves. We do believe this. We do preach this. And we believe it's cold, sober fact. And that our young people should believe it as well. If they don't, they don't. But it's not because we told them to believe and then we don't. Yes. Um, kind of processing this here. Uh, and my wife and I have some experience with a group of people who had modalistic uh, tendencies in their theology. Okay. They would really hang on any time they saw the word became or become in the scriptures, uh, such as Jesus became a life-giving so, spirit. Yeah, so let me explain that to everybody. Modalism is that there's only one God, and sometimes he's the son in that mode, sometimes the father in that mode, and sometimes the spirit in that mode, Correct. Yes. Yes, that, and, and it's heresy, by the way, condemned as such uh, in some of the early councils. Yes. Right. So I'm looking at this. I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking. Hmm, We're losing it. Losing it. I wonder what they would think about these verses. And you know, about, I guess what I'm wondering is in the Hebrew, when you see this phrase translated into English, and having been made perfect. Is that is that throwing back to eternity, saying that eternally Christ had been made perfect, or are we trying to um, figure out what is he now that he wasn't before, and if anything... He was, was he an eternal source of salvation before the crucifixion and the resurrection? Okay, I believe this referring to what happened on a cross and that everything that happened before the sacrifices, the people who had faith, Abraham and the patriarchs, Moses, was looking forward to this event. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus says, but this is talking about in history. Now, that doesn't imply any deficiency in Messiah before, but he becomes the author of our salvation. And that's what Hebrews makes very clear, because if the blood of bulls and goats were sufficient to take away sins, they wouldn't have to be offered over and over again. But he, the perfect, obedient son, offered himself once for all to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what it's talking about. Right, right. The, right. We have the, the doctrine of the preexistence of Christ. Yep. And we also have the understanding that you cannot have effectual salvation without a perfect sacrifice. So Amen. he had to be perfect even before the sacrifice. Exactly. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any 
e- source of eternal salvation. Yeah, that's clear. Yeah, that's a very good point. You're absolutely right. I was just going to add to that, Bob. Um, when Jesus dies, it's the last opportunity for him to have sinned. So when he dies, he dies a perfect death. And so this having been made perfect, is that the, no pun intended, is the perfect tense there, Bob? Did you I, like I believe that it is. I have my... Is it Aaron? Oh, thank you. That's Aaron. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Whoever has the Greek with them, mine's okay. printed out and sitting on my desk. But but the idea would be that when he dies and breathes his last, it really is the last opportunity for him to sin and therefore not be this perfect sacrifice. Now, is he perfect from all eternity? Absolutely. But he demonstrates it in history as our representative. The moment he dies, the last possible moment he could have sinned. And he remains faithful. Yeah, let me quote Lane one more time, the last sentence that I have, at least in my notes. It says, Lane, quote, Jesus learned experientially what obedience entails through his passion in order to achieve salvation and become fully qualified for his office as eternal high priest. And I agree with that. Well, let's go and see if we get some more light on that in verse 10. Being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. This is where we're getting into the exhortation part, and there's going to be an inclusio, I'll show you that, and in the midst of this is a warning against apostasy. This is revolutionary, this is startling, This will call you up short and make you think, wow, I better be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Here's a group that is starting to get tired of learning these things. You wouldn't think you would ever hear it, but I've heard it, and Eric's heard it. We don't want to learn more about Christ and what he's done for us and his intercessory. We want to know what to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Then we'll be happy. And so this is evangelicalism in a nutshell. Five steps to this, nine secrets to the happy life, 12 ways to be a better husband. Rick Warren would be the high priest of modern evangelicalism. Everything is turned into a little slogan, a pithy saying. Originally, Schuler was the, the guy and then try to make peace with the Roman Catholic Church and then peace with Islam and get everybody together. And we're going to unify around these ideas of better living because if you talk about Christ and his once-for-all shed blood, you exclude the Muslims that don't repent. You exclude Catholics that don't repent. You exclude neo-pagans that don't repent. And we can't just have the blood atonement, Christ, and all these things we're studying here, because then we're not going to get along with everybody. Now, for my study, the technical terminology in the Greek was used later by Polycarp in the context of martyrdom. And later in Hebrews, it says, you have not resisted yet to the shedding of blood. And the idea was that persecution was becoming so intense against the house church was that martyrdom had either already happened or was staring them in the face. And some thought 
by backing away from these things, they could avoid it. And that was the heart of hearing. We don't want to hear about it. Why would that lead to martyrdom? Because it was an affront to the high priest in Jerusalem. This is Jewish persecution that was happening. Okay. What do you think Paul was doing when he persecuted the church? Breathing out threats. How dare you say that our sacrifices are inadequate and that we need Christ? And then look at Stephen's sermon. And so it was a real thing. And so they thought, well, we'll just not get into this. And so what William Lane does that I believe he's convinced me very much so. You don't have so much a literal thing as an ironic one. When he said, when you ought to be teachers here in a bit, he means that literally. In other words, you have been taught. It's not like they never heard the ABCs of Christianity. Everywhere in Hebrews, it's assumed that they did. If you read Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, this is high-level stuff. He writes it to them, and assuming all along that they can understand it. But he says they become dull of hearing, meaning don't tell us this. Blah, 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 blah. Like the kid, I don't want to hear you. Um, the term dull, I have it as soft Yeah, dull, yeah, okay, I got it. His, the, somehow the mic doesn't make, make it all the way to this receiver. Like yeah, you got it. Let me repeat what he said because it's not going to work back there. Dull can mean sluggish, lazy. What's a slug? You know, the King James has sluggard. Is that a good thing to be? No. No. (laughs) Well, what is it about a slug or a sluggard that would be bad? Slow, lazy, you know, not caring. Not wanting to do the study or the hard work. Okay. I don't know what you said, but it's probably better I didn't. Post office. Well, yeah, he said the post office. Sluggardly. He can say that. He works for them. Now, here's what we want to do. Now, the point of this isn't that they got to take a remedial class on the ABCs of Christianity. The point of it is they need to step up to the plate, to use a baseball figure of speech, They are prepared. They have been taught. They do know these things. They need to care about them, and they need to be passionate about them and to be devoted to the apostles' teachings. And it is real. Maybe you haven't been through a terrible crisis for a while. I have several of them. And uh, I've been knocking on death's door a few times, although... I've been brought back from it, and I'm feeling pretty good right now. But I'll tell you, when I was knocking on death's door, not that I really was trying to die, but I was. I was dying. I used to just cry out to Jesus. Lord Jesus, help me. I couldn't sit there with my blood at 4.3 for hemoglobin. I couldn't sit there with my fogged over mind for my physical condition and formulate some kind of a long, fancy prayer. But I knew Jesus was the high priest in heaven. Lord Jesus, help me. Can you do that? 
Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Do you believe that he ever lives to make intercession for you? Do you believe that he's a compassionate, merciful high priest who hears us? That I don't have to have a PhD in theology. I don't have to be an ordained minister. I don't have to be a mystic or hyper-pious one compared to everybody else. All I need to be is a believer, a sinner saved by grace. Lord Jesus, help me. What did they say when they were dying? Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, as he died, was brought to the realization that Jesus, the high priest, was making intercession for him. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. A couple of the times when I was in that state, I wasn't even so sure. I was, I was struggling to have any kind of assurance. But the Lord restored that, too. And if we don't think we need the intercessor at the right hand because with five steps to how to be a better employee would be enough, we're fools. That's what it says here. This is bad. We've forgotten the eternal. We forgot to depend on Christ. We forgot the sufficiency of Christ. And we think that Christian life is an engineering problem. Show me how to do it. You get old enough, that idea will go right out of your head. Engineering's for people that can do it. I used to do engineering. And it, it sort of is, there's nothing wrong with it. We need to work with our hands. We need to use our talents. But we can't get so that we don't want to hear, dull of hearing. There's something wrong with us. Let me say it this way. If we don't get excited about Christ and his ministry and his love for us and his care for us and the priesthood of every believer and the high priest in heaven who prays for us, then let's do a little self-evaluation. What's wrong? What is it we get excited about? It says in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, I'll read these ones. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. I'll stop right there. I was quoting Luther one time to this end. And he referenced the guy in Mark. Eric's been preaching through Mark. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Well, Lord, everything's good because I'm a great man of faith. See people on TV, the great man of faith who has faith that you're going to send your money to him (laughs) to build a bigger mansion to call a parsonage. No, the person who comes in weakness, knowing that we have a merciful high priest who suffered all things yet without sin, Anchors our faith. Weak faith in a great Savior is great faith. Who cannot sympathize for our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Notice it says right here, yet without sin. So when it says he was perfected, 
he can't imply he had sinned because it already said he didn't in verse chapter 4. Verse 16, therefore, here's the conclusion. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What do we find at the throne of grace? Grace. (laughs) Doesn't it say that? I'm not just becoming a Lutheran because I teach means of grace. It's right here. We find grace. What do we need in our time of need? Grace. The sinner who prayed and wasn't even willing to lift his eyes toward heaven in the story in Luke. In the Greek, he says, be propitious to me, a sinner. In other words, don't look on my sin, but blot it out before your eyes. He gives us grace, and then he gives us help, and it's uh, timely. The word there is timely, and it would indicate, I'm thinking back now from when I did this on the radio, it means at the appropriate or necessary moment. Some of you may be looking at the Greek right now, but it's timely help. In other words, we don't have this massive reservoir of help we already had, and we just tap into it, right? Oh, look at this. I know I'm okay. I got some more left. What it's saying is that it all resides in Messiah at the throne of grace, and we find timely help when we need it. Like me dying, and they don't know why, and I say, Lord Jesus, help me with all of these ideas in the background. Thank you, Lord. Lane says, in the presence of God as their, high pri- their, as their high priestly advocate invests his compassion and help for the quality that guarantees they will be able to endure their situation and obtain the salvation promised to them. We have a little video that was pulled out of a sermon back when we were meeting in the hotel, and it says there, Jesus interceding for us or complaining about us. In this book, Jesus Calling, that I wrote about, I found page and page again where this Jesus speaking to this missionary complains to her about the rest of us not being very good Christians. And people are reading this book as if it were from God. So my advocate with the Father, my intercessor, is complaining to other Christians how bad I am? Does that make you want to go to Jesus? No, he's disgusted with me because I'm not a mystic. I don't go out into the silence and the solitude, which this particular Jesus tells Sarah Young. I'm not being too hard when I say this is another Jesus. It's not the one I read about here. He intercedes for us. He doesn't complain. You don't go out in solitude and then Jesus comes to you and says, you know that, those other Christians, they're a bunch of disgusting ones. I can't stand to have them as my children. What? Well, that's encouraging. Now, what makes me think I'm the one who's not like that? No, I I assume I'm the disgusting one. I know I am. But my merciful high priest cares about me anyhow. Now, we're going to see an inclusio. Do you like that word? It's a little easier to understand because it sounds like include. Okay? 
memory device. It would be like brackets from here to here. Eric and I on the radio were talking about what is it isn't a pericope. Did you always wonder about that? <laughs> no, every day. It's all I think about. What's a pericope? And I think, how do you make it plural? Pericope, probably. I don't know. I haven't got that far. I haven't got that far. Just look at that pericope. And when I was studying it under dear Dr. Verstaput, who's now with the Lord in heaven, my fabulous New Testament teacher, he said, when you're reading, that's what you're looking for. It may be a paragraph, it may not be. It may be five paragraphs. But a pericope is a section that makes a point. Okay? That it coheres together as a section. Now, when you have an inclusio, you found your pericope most of the time. And so the inclusio goes from the word dull. It's the same word in the Greek. I don't know why they changed it in the English. But 5.11 says dull, sluggish, or whatever. And in 6.12, we have the same word in the Greek. Uh, dull, it's nothros in the Greek, dull or sluggish. So from 5.11 to 6.12 is a pericope with an inclusio. Brackets. Now, what we have here is a section of exhortation that warns against apostasy. Some of the more interesting verses in the New Testament are found in Hebrews 6, 1 through 6. Can you lose your salvation? If you do, are you going to hell no matter what happens? Have you heard all those questions and you know, what have you, it's, it's debated and, and so on and so forth. Now, that's part of this section. It's the warning against apostasy. But let's get the main point. Remember Dr. Versaput was always asking, what's the main point? We get in there and we notice trees, but we never see the forest. What's the main point? That if we become dull... That's our emphasis, the beginning and the end, because we don't want to learn. Not that we can't, but we don't want to. We are in danger of denying Christ in time of persecution. Why? Because the one who becomes dull and doesn't hear is one who doesn't learn Psalm 110 and verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who's the one who doesn't learn the implication of Jesus as our high priest, is the one who doesn't know that in their worst time of temptation and trial, they can go to the throne of grace, to the one who himself was suffered, who himself was tempted, who himself was martyred, and that no matter how bad it gets, we can go to him and find grace and help in our time of need, but we don't know that because we plugged our ears and say, I don't want to hear that. And if that's the way we are, we're in danger of apostasy. That's the point. That's the forest. Now we can discuss the trees, but that's the forest. We need to know about Christ as the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek so that we don't become apostate in time of suffering and trial. 
because he overcame suffering and trial. And he's our advocate with the Father, and he will keep us and we'll find grace and help in our timely need, and God will meet us. Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, let me quote. And we desire that each of you, there is a pastorly concern here, show the same diligence. Now remember, we're talking about being devoted to the apostles' teaching, devotion, so that you realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish. See that? Same word. Dull, sluggardly, or whatever. What's the opposite of sluggish? But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's a little preview of Hebrews 11 and some of the other exhortation that you have before Hebrews 11. So we have an inclusio. Now, some weeks ago, we handed out a chart about means of grace. And if you remember, the headings were the command of God, the promise of God, and accessibility. Right? Remember that? Now, let's look at this throne of grace and prayer, plus devotion to God's word. I think both things are included here. Is there a command of God to be devoted to prayer? Yes. Yes. Is there a command of God to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God? Yes. Yes. So that far, thus far, we're okay. That's a means of grace, possibly. Is there a promise? Yes. It says the imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the eschatological promises that the down payment of which are already true now. Faith needs an object, and an object is the promises of God. Do you believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and makes intercession for you, and that you can go to that throne of grace as one of the priests and find grace and help? So you're believing the promise. Third point on our chart that only exists in my mind right now. Accessibility. Remember that one? I found that in reading Luther. What's accessibility? That's what it's talking about. We have access to the throne of grace. We don't have to go to some holy man on the earth and say, well, you go and pray for me. That's what Simon Magus did with Peter when he didn't want to repent. Well, you pray for me. Well, it's okay. You can ask somebody to pray for you, but you can't think, I'll never get there myself, so maybe Peter, he's holy, he could pray, and God might hear him. Or Mary, right? Can't expect these men to pay any attention. Jesus was a man. Let's get a feminine, goddess-like figure to do it for us. So here we have a means of grace. Command of God, the promise of God, and accessibility for all Christians. If it only applies to the monk taking oaths and living in a monastery, as far as we're concerned, it's absolutely worthless. Well, let's at least introduce the next slide, and then we'll continue next week. Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Let me stop right there. 
that means they have what they need to teach. They kind of lost interest in the topic. Isn't it bad when you lose interest in the gospel? Honestly, I've been shocked, shocked at people that I never dreamed would lose interest in the gospel who did and started complaining that it was being taught. Unbelievable. But it happened here. It can happen to us. It can happen anywhere. We should never become tired of Christ alone. Let me give you an example. I'm reading a book right now. I'm, I realize I didn't finish that verse yet. I'll probably pick it up next week. I'm reading a book by a guy named Tullian, his front first name. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Billy Graham's grandson called Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Right, And my daughter read it and found great hope and comfort in it and wrote a review for it on Amazon because she gets, she does that. You know, she, they give her stuff and she reviews it. And then said something on the Internet, and here comes all of this flack. Antinomianism, it's really bad. We need to do more, try harder. People that believe in the sufficiency of Christ just want to sin and they're looking for an excuse. Blah, blah, blah. And so this big battle's going on on the Internet. At least what she told me. And the people that are standing up for Tullian would be Lutherans, like Chris Roseborough and people like that. And the Reformed people are attacking him, even though he's Reformed. So I said to Jessica, I will read the book, and then we'll do a little radio interview about it or something. So I'm reading the book, and it's not saying any more than the book of Colossians or the book of Galatians does on the sufficiency of Christ. And it's, he's preaching things that we preach here. So if we fail to preach law works, are we telling you to go sin? I don't think so. I don't believe that for one second. I believe that by teaching about the intercessory ministry of Christ, we're giving you something to go to to overcome temptation. That's right. But if it's just a human ability plus law works... You know, Christ plus nothing equals everything. It's no more in Colossians 1. So I'm going to defend the book and let somebody get mad and call me a Lutheran. (laughs) I don't care. Because that's all I have is what Christ did for me, not what I add to it. So I I love this dear brother, Tullian. He got into a tough situation taking over for D.J. Kennedy out in this Coral Ridge and (laughs) been through a lot of difficulty but I like the book and maybe I join my Lutheran friend Chris Roseboro but so be it because we shouldn't be tired of hearing about Christ I can give you five steps of law what you ought to go do but I don't think it's going to do you any good I think Christ at the right hand of God will so they were starting to think it wasn't of any import why should we teach about Christ? Let me give you a little a foretaste and it will be done and I'll pick this up next week. Laying out about this says this, it is irony, you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. It's irony, okay? It is irony, says Lane, calculated to shame them and recall them to the stance of conviction and boldness 
consonant with their experience and hope. The community has deviated from its earlier course by becoming sluggish in understanding. Their regression to infancy must represent a quite recent development. You know what regression looks like? I can do it myself. Just point me in the right direction and I'll solve my own problems. Just give me the principles and I'll go do it. That's regression. Do we preach Christ? Yes. Do we preach the sufficiency of Christ? Yes. Do we preach Christ as the high priest at the right hand of God? Yes. If that offends some people, then they're offended by the gospel. Because there's nothing that ought to be offensive to a Christian about Christ and his high priestly ministry. But you want to know why evangelicalism is going back to Rome? Because they don't want to hear about this. So the Pope is making inroads to make peace with Christians in evangelical circles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is comforting and convicting to us. Help us to be like those who through hope and faith in the promises receive what is promised in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.